today we're going to look at a narrative that I think that many of you might be familiar with. It's contained in all three of the Gospels, what are known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's the story of the rich young ruler. And I'm confident that most have heard the story at, at some point. I've entitled this message for today, I'm Good With God. And this was the thought of this young man and the thought of many today. The narrative is going to illustrate for us three key principles that I think we confront today. One is the cost to follow Christ. And there is a definite, most definite cost to follow Jesus. The second is the consequences of rejecting Christ. And the third is the contentment there is in following Christ. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles today to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Is there anybody who needs a Bible that doesn't have a Bible? Because everything we do comes straight from the Bible. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get a Bible to you. We're going to be looking today at Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. And today we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 22. But I'm going to read you the whole narrative as it is today. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man came up to him and knelt before him began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt the love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But at these words, his face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at these words. But Jesus answered again and said to him, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who could be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, or farms, for my sake, and for the gospel's sake, that shall not receive hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, 
eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. We know that the other Gospels contain this narrative as well. In Matthew, it's found in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 26, and also found in Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. I know everybody has heard of the eye through, camel through the eye of the needle analogy, and I've heard countless sermons of people who have preached messages on this, speaking about specifically how you know, riches are bad, or some people even go further and say, well, the way into the kingdom is through abstract poverty. I think what we're going to see tonight and today, we are going to be looking specifically at what the challenge that Jesus presented to this young man. And that challenge was this. There is a cost to follow Jesus. We have lived in a country where to follow Christ, to be called a Christian, basically has come without any cost. But throughout the world, as I've said time and time again, Christians are the number one persecuted people group in the world. Uh, just this past week, I mentioned this last week, I received an email from someone in my prayer group talking about 1,400 Nigerian Christians killed in a few days by Ferlani tribesmen. They're in a Muslim extremist group along with Boku Haram and went into the parts of Nigeria that was safe for Christians and just shot everything in sight. Everything, no questions asked. Just went in killing, wanton killing. This has been the scene throughout generations. The first 10 years, the first 300 years of the church, I think I shared this with you, that Rome unleashed 10 government-sanctioned persecutions against the church of Jesus Christ, estimated to result in the death of 2.5 million Christians. And yet 2,100 years later, the church is here. We're here. Let me give you a word of advice, too. The days that we're living in are very tenuous. Wouldn't you agree? Very tenuous. We don't know what tomorrow brings. I would say and I would submit to everybody, appreciate the church while you have the church. Appreciate freedom while you have freedom. Appreciate the ability for us to come into this place and not worry that government officials are going to storm the door and kick the door down and take people away in handcuffs and arrest others and persecute others. Appreciate light while it is still light outside because Jesus said a day is coming when darkness will come and there will be no more light. So we need to appreciate before the eyes of the Lord that we as a people are able to come and worship the Lord and let it be from our heart. Let it not be from obligation. So here we have a narrative. This isn't a parable. This is a historical narrative. The gospel writers are recording an incident with Jesus that they had seen. And we know that one thing about this young man, we don't know much. We know that he's identified one in all the three gospels as young, two, wealthy, three, a ruler. What kind of ruler was he? Well, chances are 
the most accurate depiction of this, is he was a ruler in the synagogue. So we know that he's a religious man. We know that, by and large, he's a moral man. And notice Mark's narrative in verse 17. It says, as he, meaning Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. I want you to get the scene. You could sense, and this is why I like Mark's version of this, by the way, the best, because Mark integrates the emotional aspects of this. The other two Gospels don't talk about the man running up to Jesus and kneeling before him. They say a man came before Jesus. But Mark captures this narrative with all of its intensity and all of its emotion. And he talks about how this young man came to Christ, ran up to him, and knelt before him. Do you think he was eager? To meet Jesus? I think he was. Do you think he was eager to meet Jesus because he feared Jesus? I don't think he did. I think he heard about some great prophet. I think he heard about this great man who heals all kinds of diseases. I think he heard about this great preacher of wisdom that preaches and startles the crowd. We know that Mark's gospel begins with Jesus preaching, and they say, who is this? who speaks to us with authority, not like the scribes. And I know that he must have come to Jesus, and he must have been full of questions. And there was one question that was on his mind. And we see it in verse 17. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Hey, that's a noble question. That's an honorable question. What must I do? That's what people are asking today. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? Although they don't like the word saved anymore. What must I do to be right with God? That's effectively what he's asking. How could I be right with God. Deep inside the mind of the rich young man was he was on a moral path. He was on a spiritual path. And he probably realized that eternal life was in grasp if he could just do one more thing. Now, being children of the Reformation, people who hold to the great doctrine of justification by faith, as you're reading this particular text, something should leap out at you. What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Every other religion that's out there will tell you what you must do to please God, except biblical Christianity, which answers the question, it's not what you do, it is what God has done, what God has appropriated, what God has secured for the believer. And the, you know, if most of us are asked that question today, most in the church were asked that question today, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The refrain is this most of the time. 
Well, make sure you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And we'll also throw in and make sure you're sincere. Because if it's not sincere, it doesn't count. But I want to share something with you. That narrative is not biblical. You'll never see Jesus say, accept me into your heart as personal Lord and Savior. Jesus never makes that cry. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so much more than just merely a Christian incantation. More than a prayer. The gospel involves the mind. It involves the soul. It involves the intellect. The mind, because the conscience must be pricked or stirred to acknowledge that prior to salvation, we are enemies of God. The soul, which is the essence of our being, that which is eternal, because our eternal destiny is riding on this. And the intellect, the will, because we must come to that place whereby we entrust ourselves wholly. We believe and completely turn to Christ. It is not contingent on a particular prayer. It is not contingent upon your profession. It is not contingent upon baptism. It is contingent on faith and faith alone. All of this work, all that we talked about, the mind, the intellect, and the will, all of this is a work of God. It is a sovereign, divine work of God. And salvation is evidenced with repentance. And let me be clear with this. Repentance being turning away from sin and a turning to God. But even repentance is a sovereign work of God. And I want to emphasize clearly, repentance is not a work of man. I think repentance can be best defined as an outward manifestation of an inward work of God. God does the work internally, which manifests itself in outward repentance. Scripture tells us that without repentance, there is no salvation. There are some scriptures, Luke 13, 5, the words of Jesus. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Acts 2, 38, Peter at Pentecost, and Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3.19, Repent therefore and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 26.20, but Paul kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout the whole region of Judea, Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And Paul writes to the church of Corinth at 2 Corinthians 7.10, 
For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The gospel of Jesus Christ must always involve repentance unto faith. We call men and women to repent and to return from their sins and entrust themselves by faith to Christ. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel message. It's not, you know, one, two, three, four steps. It's not this. It's not God has a great plan for you. Don't you want a super duper happy life? Boy, Jesus is your best friend. He accepts you the way you are, the way you are. God calls men and women to repent, to turn from their sins and turn to Christ and to cling to Christ. And perhaps some of you have made some kind of commitment that has not resulted in a desire for God and a new life in Christ. I call on you to repent today, this day. I call on you to repent, to stop trusting in anything else. Are you trusting in in, in a decision you made that didn't result in new life? Are you trusting in something you did many years ago? Are you trusting in your baptism? Are you trusting in your church membership? What are you trusting other than Jesus Christ? And if you have not trusted Jesus Christ, if you have not experienced the new birth, I call on you today to repent, turn from your sins, throw yourself on the mercy of God, cry out, God, save me a sinner, and I can tell you with absolute certainty he'll save you. I want to call your attention to something else in the text. In verse 17, and I think it's worth noting, this man, this rich, young synagogue ruler, is about to enter into a conversation with the living God. He doesn't know whom he's speaking with, but he is about to enter into a conversation with the living God, and he's going to seek to justify himself in a conversation with the living God, with the God who judges and knows the thoughts and the intents of the heart. This young man believed that salvation was there. It was right in his grasp. If he he could just fill in the missing puzzle, find the missing piece, he can bring himself to salvation. Now listen, let's not be harsh on the young man. He came out of a system of works. He came out of a system that you do this and you do that and you wash your hands X amount of times and you bring X amount of altar, uh, offerings to the altar and you say this and you go a number of times and you do that. That's like most of us. Most of us come out of a system of works, right? I don't care what your previous background was before you in Christ. Most of the people will, will, will take a look at themselves and say, well, I'm a good person because I do this and I don't do that. So let's not be all harsh. You know, there's a tendency when we read the scripture because now we have the full revelation of the word of God. We look back on those people and go, oh, what a bunch of idiots. How could they be so stupid? Man, Jesus was right there. You should have known it was justification by faith. And I think this young man came up to Jesus and probably thought, oh, my goodness, here is a great prophet of God. 
And if I could get the answer from him, I'm good. I'm good. That's the response you get from most people today. I'm good. You need Christ. I'm good, man. I'm good with God. Doesn't Jesus accept you the way you are? No. Can we put that one to bed, please? Can we make a commitment? We're never going to say that. God accepts you the way you are. He does not. You must repent. You must be born again. And I believe that he didn't know that one greater than a prophet was there in Christ. And so the young man goes up to the Lord. He says, teacher, what, what shall I do to inherit uh, eternal life? And notice, his, notice Jesus' response in verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, was Jesus really denying his deity? Is that, is that what Jesus was doing there? Was he denying his deity? No, he's not denying his holiness. He's not denying his perfection. He's not denying his deity. Jesus is getting the man to reflect on his own question. Listen, no one there in Judaism in first century would call anyone good because it was known that only God was good. So he's calling him to reflect. Are you asking me this? Are you asking me this? Only God is good. And the point is exactly that. Only God is good. That's exactly the point. And this term was reserved for God and God alone. So what Jesus is really doing throughout this dialogue is he wants to get the man to think about what he's asking. So Jesus' immediate response is, hey, only God is good. And if the disciples' heads were enlightened at that point, they go, amen. Amen, Lord, go ahead, preach it. But notice, he asked, what thing can I do? What is the one thing I can do? Look at verse 19. And Jesus says this, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Where was Jesus directing this young man? He was directing this young man to the Ten Commandments, wasn't he? The moral law of God. The moral law of God, which, by the way, still applies to this day. The moral law of God, which reflects the true character and the nature of God. We all love the Ten Commandments, right? They're all being torn down all over the country. They don't want to know about them. Our wicked and our evil society says, get that witness out of my face. I don't want to know about God's moral righteousness. But the law, it's very interesting to notice that Jesus responds with the law. He responds with the law. And the law establishes God's perfect righteousness. What was the response to Jesus? Why do you call me good? Who's the only one that is good? Only God is good. And so he continues with, well, you know the law. But there's something interesting here. He doesn't begin at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, does he? He begins at the end of the Ten Commandments, the last five commandments. 
which all have to deal with man's interaction with other people. Right? And he goes through the list. And you'll notice something here that Christ always gives to the proud the law. But to the humble, he extends grace. There was another encounter Jesus had. He had an encounter with a woman that was caught in the very act of adultery. Remember that story? The Pharisees drag her out and they throw her before Jesus. And they say this woman was caught in the very act of adultery and the law says she should be stoned. You remember that scenario? Caught in the very act. Not supposition, not rumor. They bring him before Jesus. One thing you notice, they didn't bring the man, right? The man wasn't there. All of a sudden, he kind of slipped away, yet adultery was punishable for the man as it was for the woman. And Jesus makes that very, very famous statement. Says he, sits and he writes on the ground. Now, we don't know what is written on the ground in that account. Some people speculate that he wrote the Ten Commandments. But we do know this, that Jesus says, he who was without sin cast the first stone. And it says one by one, they dropped, they, these people were armed for bear. They wanted to stone that woman. They had the stones in their hands. And the scripture says one by one, they, they dropped the stones, then they all walked away. And here was this woman caught in the act of sin. And Jesus said, is there no one to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In humility, she found grace. In pride, you receive the law. Why? Because the law pricks the heart. The law pricks the heart. The law brings consciousness to get uh, pricked. And so all of a sudden, the eyes are open and we stand in the presence of a holy God and we look at ourselves and we see that we are violators of the law. I think one of the reasons the Lord showed the laws to show, listen, you may be righteous. You may think you're doing good. But let me tell you, there is no one who does good. They're all turned aside. All have fallen away. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But there will be one, and that one is Christ, in whom the Lord will lay upon him the iniquity, the sin of us all. What would the response have been if the Lord responded with, you shall have no other gods before me? He would have cut right to the quick. And even though by giving the law here, he's pricking the man's heart Jesus gives the law so that this young man can understand how far short 
He falls from God's perfect righteousness. And let me tell you something. We could do the same thing when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we give the law, we're able to show people how far short they fall of the perfect righteousness of Christ. When you offer grace without the acknowledgement of sin, when you offer grace without a revelation of God's holy standard, you know what happens? People say, I'm good. I don't need it. And you say, you got to be saved. And they go, saved from what? And you know what people do? They go to the most extreme, extreme self-judgment and self-righteousness. And they say, well, I'm not like him. I'm not like her. You know, that person's a bad person. And they start pulling Hitler and Mussolini and Pol Pot and all these despots of the world. Hey, I'm not a mass murderer. I'm not good. I help old ladies across the street. I give to charity. I do this. When grace is offered without the acknowledgement of sin, it will cause most people to say, there's nothing wrong with me. Which is why when we use the law, we prick the mind. We, we crack that mind. We pull into their consciousness. If ten commandments are the perfect righteousness of God, notice how far short that you fall. Jesus dealt with this in his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. We're not going to go through it in its entirety. But I will tell you this, the Sermon of the Mount deals with righteousness. That is the essence of it. The summary of the Sermon of the Mount can be found in Matthew 5.20 where Jesus says this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of God. And that same call goes out today. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of God. There's a terrible thing upon the church. Many people in the church are saying, I'm good with God. I'm good. And there's an indifference, and there's a coldness, and there's a shallowness, and there's all these other different things, and people are walking around saying, I'm good. I'm good with God. But yet their righteousness does not exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's not a self-righteousness. The righteousness that Jesus is talking about was the reason we needed a Savior. It was that the righteousness of God would be imputed to all who put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. This is serious stuff. Let me tell you something. I'm done with a lot of this casual Christianity. I'm done with this cultural Christianity. You may not like what I say. You may not like how I say it. But the one thing I will tell you is I am preaching the truth according to the gospel. And you have two choices. Respond and submit yourself to the gospel or reject it. It's as easy as that. And I love this here. Because we're going to see in verse 21, Jesus is not doing this to hurt the man. Jesus is doing this to help the man. Because in verse 21, he says, he felt a love for him. He 
his heart was motivated with love. I think, honestly, I think Jesus looked at this man and knowing his heart saw that there were some righteousness in him and he was in pursuit. He also saw the sin. He also saw the pride. He also saw the love of money and everything else. But Jesus was moved inside with a love for him. Sometimes when we share the gospel, we have to declare hard truths. We don't like to do that. Most, are not, most of us are not overtly confrontational. But you know what? The hardest truth we have to tell those we love to whom we are sharing the gospel is that there is salvation in none other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They need to hear about sin. They need to hear about judgment. They need to hear that one day they're going to give an account to the holy and righteous God. And it's not just about fun and games, and it's not just about Jesus wants your best life ever and that life to be here on earth. It's about that all are going to give an account and they're going to make a decision, and that decision will result in life or death eternally. By giving him the law, Jesus is showing him that his righteousness is insufficient for salvation. What does Jesus tell him? He says, you shall not murder. We see that in the Beatitudes, uh, in, uh, Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21. Do not commit adultery. Everybody goes, okay, I ain't got no problem there. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor thy father and thy mother. Now imagine this. This is coming from Jesus, who in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon of the Mount said, hey, I'm going to tell you a few things here. Number one, you've heard it said that you shouldn't kill. I tell you, if you're angry with your brother without forgiveness in your heart, you've already committed a murder in your heart. He said, you heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. And he walks them through one by one. What was the purpose of that? Here is where your righteousness fails. Here's where your righteousness fails. Here's the holy standard. Here's you. Now, it is it conceivable that this young man is it conceivable that this young man, maybe he never did murder? Possibly. Maybe he never did commit adultery. Possibly. Maybe he never stole the thing in his life. He never bore false witness. He always told the truth. He didn't defraud. He honored his father and his mother. Is it conceivable? It's, it's conceivable. It's a long shot. Still, he falls short of the righteousness of God. The heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. Who can know it? Only one knows the heart, right? Jeremiah 17.10, For I, the Lord, know the heart, and I rend it to all men according to their deeds. When we present the law, the law stimulates the conscience in the light of God's righteousness. Simply put, 
we see the holiness of God and our inability to keep the law of God. Hence, we see ourselves as sinners before a holy God. That's just the place we want to bring people to. And if we see ourselves as sinners, our, our consciences move. We stand convicted in need of a Savior becomes clearer. It will result either in a heart of repentance or a heart of rejection. Jesus' point in this dialogue becomes very clear. One cannot keep the law. It's impossible when we're focused on the heart. If God's requirement is that all the law be kept, then who among us can keep the law? None. That is the point. The point of the law is to humble a heart, to humble a person, and bring about a recognition for Savior. Jesus loves this man so much that he's not going to allow him to feel good about his moral condition. He's not going to allow him to revel in his self-righteousness. And so Jesus desires to show this young man how far he falls short. Many times we can read this account and we can think, oh, this man's messed up. We're so much better him, but here's the bulletin, we're not. We are the same. We fall short of that perfect righteousness required by law. Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are all in desperate need of a Savior. We all would stand condemned in the best of our moral righteousness. But God, and you know how many times I tell you when you're reading the Scriptures, look for the but gods. But God being rich in mercy with which he loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've been on Tuesday night, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Romans, and, and I've been making a big to-do as we've been in Romans chapter 8 about what the law could not do, what the law could not do. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Romans 8, 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. What couldn't the law do? The law could not save. The law could not make one right before God. By no works of the law shall any flesh be justified in his sight, Romans 3.20. The law could not save. And this is the point of Paul in Romans chapter 8. For what the law could not do, God did. God did it. What man could not do, God did. What the law could not do, God did. What did God do? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is the requirement of the law? Righteousness, holiness, God's moral perfection, what the law could not do for this young man. This is the point of Christ giving him the law. What the law could not do, God did. Christ did. He sent his son 
in the form of flesh to become a sacrifice for sin so that what? What this young man was looking for, the requirement of the law, so that it would be fulfilled in us. Paul says, who, by the way, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let me tell you something. If you are in Christ, you're no better than anybody else. What you could not do, what your moral works couldn't do, what the law could not do, God did in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. And that needs to be apprehended. That is not just intellectual belief. Many people will go to hell believing that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. The believer apprehends this truth, and the truth apprehends the believer. And we abound, and we are compelled, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, The love of Christ controls me. It compels me. Look at verse 20. Back in Mark Mark chapter 10. Continuing on. And this is where it becomes problematic. Verse 20. And the young man, it doesn't say the young man, I'm just putting it in context. And he said to them, he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. I'll put it in modern day vernacular. Teacher, I'm good. What else you got? What else you got? I believe. I believe that the young man believed that he had kept all the commandments. I believe he believed he kept all of his commandments. I'm not saying he kept all the commandments. I'm saying I believe he believed he kept all of his commandments. And I believe that this young man was one of a good, what we would consider today a good moral character compared to other men. Right? Not saying compared to God. I'm saying you probably want that guy for a neighbor. He's probably a good guy. And I believe that this young man had a yearning in his heart for eternal life and to be made right with God. And if you recall from verse 17, this young man was looking for the silver bullet. He was looking for that one thing he he needed to do. That was what was in his mindset. What is the thing I need to do to lock it up, to lock up eternal life? That was his question to Jesus. Jesus, as we saw, responds with the law, and to this, the young man, it must have been disappointing to him. It's as if he were to tell me, tell me something I don't know, Jesus. There was nothing novel in what Jesus said. It was old news. And according to this young man, I've kept the law ever since I was a young young lad, young boy. And I said to you earlier, he didn't even know that he was talking to the living God incarnate. 
He sought to justify himself before God. The one who knows the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. But this is precisely his problem. This is precisely his problem. He believes that he's good with God. He would say, I'm good. The basis of his belief is self-judgment in self-righteousness. When we compare ourselves to others, others that are much worse than us, that makes us feel good about ourselves. Well, I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a mafia hitman. I'm not a, I'm not a mass murderer, you know? And we look at our religious works. The religious works become the bridge. Works not born in faith, but rather in tradition and formalism, and we use those to justify our righteousness. What does that look like and sound like? I go to church on Sunday. I've been a member of the church 30, 40 years. Oh, when I was in Awana camp, I raised my hand. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and say, what are you doing for the Lord now? Well, I go to church. You know, honestly, can I say something? I'm so sick and tired of talking to people who profess to know Christ who will spend more time with me justifying their sin than justifying their desire for Christ. They'll sit there and tell me every single thing under the sun while they could drink and party and, 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 and you know, do this and do that and do the other thing. And they will go into long diatribes of why and how and, and all this other stuff. You know, even Jesus drank, you know, even this, blah, 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 blah. And they will, boy, they will put so much effort. But there's none of that effort to live sanctified, holy lives in Christ. Matter of fact, I won't even have that argument anymore. You want to do that? Go ahead and do it, man. There's got to be an awakening within the church of God. There's got to be an awakening within the people of God. We got to pant after God. We got to thirst after God. We got to hunger after God. We got to desire God. We need to desire God more than we desire the things of the world. When will we wake up? When will we say it's Christ or nothing? You know what my greatest fear is? My greatest fear is that there are many in the church that say I'm good with God, that aren't good with God. That's my greatest fear. Usually what most people who do that use to justify is look at my works. Look at my works. A.W. Tozer makes this great statement. I love it. Today, the, and by the way, bear in mind, this is written during the 50s and the 60s of the past century, which is weird. Today, the church is satisfied with a God of history, with the Christ of history. We have a God in history and a Christ in history but we do not have a God in living personal experience. This is why we are so dissatisfied and so empty and have so little vibrant joy in the things of God. Oh, that all would come to Christ and abandon their righteousness in exchange for the righteousness of Christ. 
I mean this from the depths of my soul, that all would see the folly in trying to earn their way to heaven in lieu of entrusting yourself completely to Christ. Oh, that all hearts would point and thirst for a living God rather than proud hearts thinking it all is well when it is not well. Oh, that the church would repent, repent from indifference and apathy, repent from sinfulness, repent from laziness, come into the knowledge of the one true God of Christ Jesus, who saves us from sin into the power and into the person of the Holy Spirit. Back in verse 20. Jesus is constantly driving the conversation to show this young man the hardness and the sinfulness of his heart. Jesus does not want to hurt him. Rather, he wants to help him come into the fullness of understanding and the salvation that is only in Christ. And there are so, so many today that are like this proud young ruler, confident, self-assured, Many times, proclaiming conversations with the living God, they do not even know. Look at verse 21, and I love this. And looking at him, Jesus felt the love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And here clearly is the cost to follow Jesus. I mentioned earlier what I like about Mark's gospel is he he really pulls back the, the 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 peels the onion back and you see the emotional and you see the really thing uh, the real heart going in there. Look at what it says. He felt the love for him. First of all, he says looking at him and in the Greek that ten that term for look means that he stared on him. We would say that he stared through him. It's an intensity. It's a very specific focus. He looked at him intently, Jesus did. It's a sustained look. And here's the Son of God, God incarnate, staring into the person of this young man. The young man, one-on-one with God. The judge of all creation. And was that a stare of hatred, a judgment? No. Because we know the text says after him, looking at him, Jesus felt a love. And that love, the Greek verb, agapao, which is where we get agape, which is that sacrificial love of God. So notice, he stares at him. He looks at him intently, and his heart is stirred. With a love of God. And in response, Christ is going to deal honestly with him. Christ is going to deal transparently with him. The young man wanted to know what one thing he lacked that he might have eternal life. And Jesus is going to tell him, here it is. Are you ready? You're looking for the silver bullet? Here it comes. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. 
The young man asked the question that he wasn't prepared to hear the answer for the Bible. The other gospel accounts tell us he was one that had a lot of property. He was wealthy. And seeing that there was another God on his heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all honesty, with the fiery eyes of truth, peered into his heart. He said, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you the thing that is hindering you from coming to Christ. Here it is. Are you ready for it? Sell everything you have because God, your God is money. Your God is wealth. Your God and your security is in that wealth and in that money and not in me. So leave it behind. Come, follow me. Sometimes the truth is too hard to hear. I've heard messages about this young man's pride and wealth and that Jesus was telling them all, you know, the way into the kingdom is poverty and you sell everything you have in poverty. No, the way to the kingdom in this man's heart, the impediment, the, 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 the roadblock that was in this man's heart was his wealth. And the question is not that poor young man. Oh, boy, if I had that, I, it would have been real obvious to me. I followed Jesus. The question is, what is the impediment in your heart that keeps you from the kingdom of God? Is it pride? Is it wealth? Is it I just don't want to be bothered? I don't have time. In short, Jesus is speaking about a total abandonment to Christ. And that abandonment is of all other loves, all other things that replace a love for God. To follow Christ means to abandon every other passion and love and to choose to follow him. That message has been lost on the church. We've painted a Jesus that augments your already fantastic life. Hey, you have a mediocre life, but come to Christ. Christ is going to be the answer to all your dreams. Come to Christ. Oh, you lack, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Come to Christ. You're sick. Oh, he's going to heal you. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. He's just floating somewhere up there just waiting for you to dial up and give him a ring so he could speed in, grant your request, and your life goes on, and it's great. The problem is that's it inconsistent with historic Christianity. I think I said this either Tuesday night or last week. I don't know. I say a lot of things I'm starting to lose control of. But do we honestly think that God sacrificed his son? I want you to think about this. Do we honestly think that God sacrificed his son that he put upon him the iniquity of all who would put their faith and trust in Christ to have an indifferent following of people who do not care, do not have a desire for him, do not pray, do not worship, but comes out one time a week and say, hey, hey Lord, went to church today. Feels so good. Went to church today, Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. And five minutes later, we're back into the same old nasty routine. Christ calls us to abandon everything to follow him. Listen to the word of God. Matthew 10, 38. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. 
I can't do more exposition on that one. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Mark 8.34, and he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Okay. What did the cross mean? It meant death. That's what it meant. Luke 9.23, and he was saying to all of them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. John 12.25, if anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father, the Father will honor him. There is a cost to following Christ. The, the gospel speaks of a call of surrender to Christ. We come to Christ on his terms, not on our terms. Note that this verse speaks of Christ's love for this young man. He spoke those words out of love. He wasn't looking to zing him. He wasn't looking to... To stick them, he was compelled with love. You ask me, I'm going to tell you. This is what is hindering you from the kingdom of God. Jesus wanting that this man would let go of his love of wealth makes this challenge so that this young man would be made complete. Remember Jesus said, one thing you lack to be complete Sell all that he has. And by the way, his treasure in heaven would outweigh his treasure on earth. Let's close this out. Jesus clearly laid out the cost to follow Christ. Listen, nobody rises to a low goal. Let me say that again. No one rises to a low goal. It's only lofty goals that one can rise to. What is more lofty, more nobler, more worthy than Christ? And if to follow Christ is down here, well, that's called the broad way. As Jesus said, he said, seek to enter into the narrow way. For the broad way is there, and many there are that find it. But narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. So the question really becomes, what are our other loves? And have you fully, completely surrendered everything to Christ? Christ calls for nothing less than everything you are and everything you have. That's the call of following Christ. So if you're trusting in membership in the church, your baptism, your profession of faith, but you don't have a passion for Christ. Repent. Turn from your sin. And turn to Christ and cry out to him to save you. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.
Father, I pray that this word, Lord, would be stored in our hearts. I pray that, Father, if any of us are here that are trusting in anything other than Christ, than Christ alone, that, oh, God, that they would turn from that and cry out and say, Dear God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they would turn and be saved. And now, Father, as we go before the Lord's table, prepare our hearts that we would receive these elements in a worthy estate. And Father, we pray that you would enjoin yourself with us during this time in Jesus' name. Amen.